want to call your attention back to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Now we're going to be uh, taking communion together tonight as a congregation. And uh, you know, we've been talking about for several weeks now, the old covenant, the old sacrifices, the old system under which the Jews functioned in the Old Testament. And the one thing that characterized all of that system was the fact that it was symbolic. All the sacrifices, the priesthood, uh, the animals, uh, the rituals, the ceremonies, they were symbolic and they pointed towards what? What did they point to? They pointed to what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? That's what they pointed to. Now we're going to take communion tonight. And communion is also a symbol. What's communion a symbol of? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But instead of us looking forward to the cross, what are we doing? We're looking back to the cross. It's the cross upon which our life is founded. It's the cross, uh, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ upon which we have hope. So just as believing Old Testament Israelites would look forward They would see in those sacrifices, they would see in those ceremonies, a testimony to something better to come, to which the writer to the Hebrews talks about. We look back. And we look back with with excitement, we look back with thanksgiving, because we know that our Redeemer lives. So I want you to be thinking tonight, we're going to talk about, again, this whole idea of we preach... Christ crucified. That's our message. If you are a true Christian, your message is we preach Christ crucified. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talks about order and propriety at the Lord's table. And he says to those Corinthians, he said, when you eat of the, eat of the bread, you drink the wine, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. You are preaching Christ crucified until he comes again. And that's our only hope. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mankind has no other hope. Uh, It's in Christ. And so we're going to look again at that this evening. I want to talk to you. Uh, We're going to, Lord willing, make it through verse 18 tonight. Isn't that exciting? I know some of you are betting against it. We're going to look at seven... Reasons that prove the superiority or the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. And upon that, we have a reason then to preach Christ crucified. We do so with great confidence. I talk to people throughout the week who have no hope. And I asked them, I said, why don't you believe? There, don't you know there is no other hope apart from Jesus Christ and Him crucified? 
And, of course, as you know, uh, people are all different stages in their life, but every so often you hit one that's ready. You find one that's ripe, one that's going to say, I need that, I need to hear it, tell me, tell me about Jesus Christ. And that's, again, a great joy. So let's look at these reasons. We're going to try to get through them rather quickly so that we can uh, spend a good season on our communion. Christ's sacrifice, number one, was God's will all along. Now we see this in verses 5 through 7. I want you to read this with me. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world... He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. I want to suggest to you that in God's mind, long before the world was ever created, that God knew the old system would be ineffective. He knew that. He understood that. From the very beginning, he planned that Jesus would come and die. From before the beginning of the world, God planned that Jesus would come and that he would die. Jesus' supreme mission on earth was to do his Father's will. That's his supreme mission on earth. In fact, do you remember when he was 12, 13 years old and they were in Jerusalem and and Mary and Joseph were headed back to their home in Nazareth and all of a sudden they discover that Jesus is not with them. They go back to Jerusalem and they search through the city for a few days. Finally, they find him where? They found him in the temple. That's right. And his response to their inquiry, where have you been? Why have you done this to us? He said, in effect, he says, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? That's the same thing as saying, I must be about my father's business, my father's will. Jesus, at that early age, was very aware of what he was here for. Over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of having come to do his father's will and only his father's will. We see this reflected in verse 7 in our passage. During the wilderness temptations, Satan's purpose was to what? Was to turn Jesus from his Father's will, wasn't it? Satan's purpose was to get Jesus to take another route, take an easier way. You don't have to go through this. You can have it this way, easier. The same thing is true for us. In, in, in our wilderness wanderings and our wilderness struggles in those times when, boy, it is dry as a bone. Satan will come in and he'll bear down and he will try to, what, dissuade us from doing God's will. Satan even tried to use Jesus' own disciples, didn't he? These unwitting disciples. Peter, do you remember Peter? Peter? When Jesus was talking about that he must go to Jerusalem, he must die, and Jeter, uh, Peter, thinking that he's being loyal and supportive to Jesus, rebukes Jesus for this very thing, that he must die and be resurrected. 
In John chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says this. But the world must learn that I love the Father. Isn't that beautiful? The world must learn that I love the Father. How is the world going to learn that Jesus loves the Father? He goes on and he says, that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Doesn't Jesus say much the same thing to us? He says, if you love me, you will obey me. So he's set the pace, hasn't he? His mission is to what? To do his Father's will, only his Father's will. And in so doing, then the world will see, the world will know that he loves the Father. The same thing again, I think, is true of our lives. After he had said that, after he would made that last statement, then he said to his disciples, this is in John chapter 14, and he said, come now, let us leave. Where was he leaving for? He was leaving to begin his, his sufferings, his passion, and he was going to go to his own crucifixion. From Jesus' own teaching, those disciples who had been with him for three years, they should have known and realized that his ministry would lead to his own suffering and death. If you were one of the twelve, and you'd, been, you'd hear him talk about this over and over and over, would it, would it become clear to you, hey, he's, he's got to die? It'd be hard to receive, wouldn't it? This is his mission, to do his Father's will. And his Father's will was that he, what? He suffer and die. They should have known, not just so much from his own teaching, they should have known this already from what? The Old Testament Scriptures. All the prophecies that spoke about the Messiah's sacrificial death. Let me read to you from one of the most classic passages. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We have spiritual healing, spiritual restoration, because Jesus was crushed for us. Now the disciples, of course should have recognized all of this. This is his work. This is what Jesus came to do. It was the Father's will that he suffer. It was the Father's will that he die. I have a question for you. If all that's true, what was Jesus' ultimate act of obedience? I think it's a trick question. What was Jesus' ultimate act of obedience? To die? Close, Bill. <laughs> now think about this for a second. Was his ultimate act of obedience just to die? 
I think his ultimate act of obedience was not just in dying itself, but was taking all of men's sins upon himself in his death. That was the ultimate act of obedience. Taking all the sins of all men, whoever lived or whoever would live, taking all those sins upon himself. It wasn't just the fact that he died. It went far beyond that. Where was his greatest test of obedience, do you think? In the garden. It was in the garden. That was when he prayed, what? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Don't we pray that? God, you, you can do anything. Get me out of this. Remove this cup. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The greatest test of obedience was in the garden. It was there that, that he had to come to grips with accepting what? Not the fact only that he was going to die, but accepting the fact that all the sins of all humanity would be placed on him. And this was the Father's plan way back from before the beginning. Lots and lots of people have, before and after Jesus, have died willingly and bravely facing a martyr's death. Isn't that true? Lots of people. But no one else has or no one else could have taken upon him or herself the sins of the whole world. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I can't even comprehend what he went through in the garden, the utter revulsion, the sheer terror that he was experiencing in that garden as no one has ever experienced, no one would ever experience in being willing to take upon himself all of our sin and all of our ugliness. Can you comprehend that? It was so terrifying to him, so repulsive to him, that it caused him, we know, to sweat blood. You talk about high blood pressure. When the capillaries all over your body burst under the pressure and the profuse sweating mixed with the blood produced great droplets of blood. Anxiety, none of us have known that. No one else, no other person ever, ever could have been so obedient. And this was from before the beginning of the world. This is what God's plan always was. Christ's sacrifice. Secondly, Christ's sacrifice replaced the old system, didn't it? We see that in verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, he says this. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. 
And that's our second point. Christ's sacrifice replaced the old system. The writer to these Hebrews, he's continuing in his commentary on Psalm 40. That's the passage it's taken from. He's commenting here on Psalm 40, pointing out that God took away the first covenant to establish the second. The old had to give way for the new. His point, very simply, is to show his Hebrew congregation again. Hasn't he been redundant at this? This is, you know, you're thinking, this is, we know this, we know this. And how many, you know, that reminds me of the, uh, of the story, a little insert here, this wasn't planned. The pastor told, brought this sermon to his congregation. And the congregation appreciated it, and everybody went out, shook his hands, said, good, good message, good message. Next week, came back, he gave the same sermon. And people thought, didn't we hear this last week? And next week, he gave the same sermon. Went on like that for about six weeks. Finally, somebody got up enough nerve to say, Pastor, you've preached the same sermon for six weeks. He says, I'm going to preach it again until you start doing it. See, these Hebrews, he is being redundant deliberately so that they understand that the old covenant is no more because they're still hanging on to it. The old covenant was not then, never had been, and never would be satisfactory, never would be effective for them. It was not meant to be permanent, had no true permanent effects for the people. It was only what? Temporary and symbolic. God's focus always has been on the second or the new covenant, the perfect covenant. That second covenant has now come in Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling them. The second covenant has now come in Jesus Christ. He says you can't be under two covenants. He says the first one's got to give way to the second one. And the second one was always the one that God had in view. And now that the second has come, the first one has to go. God has forever set it aside. So he's calling his congregation, he's calling his readers, very simply, to salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to them. He says this second covenant in Christ, he's calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. They have no salvation apart from Jesus. Are people looking for salvation? Are they looking to be saved in any number of ways through all different remedies today? All different remedies. And there are even people in the church who, who are seeking a variety of remedies for their life except the fact that they would come and, and wait at the foot of the cross and submit to Jesus Christ. It's much easier to do talking. It's much easier to uh, be involved in other, other things rather than what? Than submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is. It's in no other place. Our third reason, Christ's sacrifice makes the believer holy. No other mechanism, no other system, no other means makes the believer holy. Now this is in verse 10. He says, And by that will we have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is beautiful. To be made holy means to be set apart by God for God. That's what it means to be holy. Uh, holy doesn't mean pious. People say, well, you know, if you see a real pious person, oh, he's real holy. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Strictly means, holy strictly means to be set apart by God for God. Now, this word holy, it comes from the same root word or the same uh, group of words in the Greek uh, that we get the word saint from. Isn't that exciting? I'm Saint Zach. <laughs> Isn't that turn, to, turn to your neighbor, and, and, and if they're a Christian, say, ask their name, and then and adjust them as Saint so-and-so. Right? Isn't that exciting? You may, have never, you may have never thought of yourself in those terms, that you're a saint. So if, if holy means to be set apart by God for God, then a saint is what? A saint is one who is set apart by God for God. Okay? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes there, It is God's will that we be holy. It's God's will that we be holy in two ways. Not only positionally, but also practically. Holiness falls into those two categories. Now the phrase in verse 10 that says, We have been made holy. Now I know you'd want to know this, so I'm going to include this for you. This is extra. In the Greek, it is a perfect participle with a finite verb. Doesn't that excite you? Does that grab you? When I, when I discovered that, that took my breath away. A perfect participle with a finite verb. Now what does that mean? What, so what? What that does, the structure, the, sin, the, 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 the context, the syntax, shows in the strongest possible way in the Greek language the believer's continuing and permanent salvation. That's what, that, that's what that shows us. Literally, it means this. You have been permanently made holy. Isn't that exciting? How have we permanently been made holy? Through the what? The sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's sacrifice makes the believer holy once for all. And that fulfills, of course, God's word when he says, Be holy because I am holy. See, we can't have relationship with him, a holy God. You can't have relationship with a holy God unless what? You are holy. Right? Now, our positional standing, our positional standing before God and our practical standing are two different things. True? How many understand the difference? 
A Christian is in Christ. That's our position. That's who we are. We're in relationship with Christ. We have been immersed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's our position. That's how God sees us. He sees us in Christ. So if we are in Christ, we will forever be in Christ. That's what he's saying, once for all. This is our position before the Father. How does the Father look on you as a believer? He looks at you in Christ. Say that with me. He looks at you in Christ. That's how, I was, that's how he views me. He views me in Christ. That's, that's my position. That's my heritage. That's what's been granted to me. That's what the Holy Spirit has done in baptizing me into Christ that's our position before the Father. And that will not change in all eternity. That's what he tells us in verse 10. It's once for all. But now our practical holiness is a whole other thing, isn't it? Our practical holiness, as we know, is too changeable. Our positional holiness, is that changeable? No. But our practical holiness changes, doesn't it? Yes. It's God's will that our practice match our position. Who would agree? Isn't it God's will that our practice match our position? Who we are in Christ, that our life match up? That we demonstrate who we are in Christ? That's God's will. I want to read to you. You might want to turn back to Colossians chapter 3. Just a <clears throat> few short books back. Colossians chapter 3. And we're just going to read down through this chapter. And, and, and this talks about who you are in Christ and then how also that practical holiness should match your positional holiness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you see this positional thing? You're hidden in Christ. That's your position. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. So what's true of you now is true of you for all eternity. That's what Paul is reasserting here. Then he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your what? earthly nature. So now he's switched from positional holiness. Now he's talking about what? Practical holiness. So he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Isn't that true? So he's saying these things are inappropriate now for you. They were very appropriate before, before you'd be a believer. Now, they shouldn't be in your life. He says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. See, we're being transformed, we're being changed day to day, aren't we? 
into the very likeness of Christ. Drop down to verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, isn't that beautiful? Holy and dearly loved, he says what? Clothe yourselves with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, that's an expression of what? Practical holiness. You put off these things and you put on these things. And you let the peace of God rest in your life. And the world will what? The world will see that you love the Father. And you'll have a powerful testimony. All right, number four. Christ's sacrifice is effective. It is superior because it removes sin. Nothing else removes sin. We talked a little bit about this last week. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Can never take away sins. What a mind blower. All those sacrifices, what a waste. If you're hoping to have your sins taken away, forget it. But when this priest... Who's he talking about? Jesus. He says, But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The sitting down was emblematic of what? The fact that the sacrifice was over, that it was effective, that it was finished, that it indeed took away all sins. The old sacrifices could never take away sins, he tells us. The new covenant went from daily sacrifices to one sacrifice. From ineffective sacrifices to one perfectly effective sacrifice. In verses 11 and 12, there's, there's four contrasts. There's a little series of contrasts. Let me give them to you quickly, and if you miss them, then you can just go back into verses 11 and 12 pick them up yourself. First contrast is many priests versus one priest. The second contrast, continual standing of the old priest contrasted with the sitting down of the new priest. The third contrast we find there is the repeated offering contrasted with the once-for-all offering. And the last contrast, the ineffective sacrifices that only covered sin with the effective sacrifices that completely remove sin. The Levitical sacrifices, with all their priests, all the repetition, 
could never take away sin. Christ's one perfect sacrifice took away the sins of all believers for all time, as evidenced by Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. The fifth reason that we preach Christ crucified is that the sacrifice of Christ destroyed his enemies. Verse 13. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Since what time? Since his sacrifice. He waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Christ's sacrifice was superior. It was effective because it conquered his enemies. How so? All the sacrifices of the Old Covenant did nothing to get rid of Satan. They had no effect on the devil. No effect on the whole demonic realm. No effect on all the worldly enemies of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus died on the cross, but when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt a death blow to all of his enemies. All of his enemies. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that he conquered him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He whipped him. And where did he whip him? At the cross. He also triumphed over all the fallen angels, all the hordes of demons that serve Satan. And Jesus also, we're told in Colossians chapter 2, he disarmed and he triumphed over all powers and authorities of all ages who rejected and opposed God. And now, now he is only waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. In other words, according to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10, until every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's just waiting. Every enemy in all the history of God's creation, whether demonic or human, is going to bow their knee and say, Jesus is Lord. However, that doesn't prevent them from still continuing on their way to the fiery place. Jesus will stand above all those who were his enemies. He won the victory, and he won it over them at the cross. And they are all the enemies of God throughout all the ages. It was at the cross where they all gathered against him to kill him. Think about that. But Jesus conquered even death, the last enemy. He conquered all those enemies. He went in one side of death and he came out the other. He conquered death not only for himself, but also for all who have ever and ever will believe in him. He's conquered death. We don't need to fear death. Jesus turned Satan's worst into God's best. 
Think about that. We preach Christ crucified to the Gentile foolishness, to the Jew a stumbling block. But that's what we preach, the cross. Number six, Christ's sacrifice is superior, it's effective because it perfects the saints forever. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, Because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, that phrase, those who are being made holy, talks about all the saints down all the history. They are made perfect. And they're made perfect how? By their works? By what? One sacrifice. That sacrifice of Jesus. The death of Jesus removes sin forever, we know, from those who belong to Him. We are beloved totally secure in Jesus, our Savior. I don't know about you, but that gives me a great sense of comfort that I'm totally secure in Jesus. Now, we need cleansing, don't we? Because we do fall into sin. We need cleansing when we do fall into sin, but we need not fear God's judgment on us because of our sin. Why? Because Jesus took that judgment that we might be, what, made perfect forever. As far as Christ's sacrifice is concerned, we have already been made holy. We have already been perfected, which is why he had to sacrifice himself only once. It happened in that one sacrifice. Beloved, that's why we preach Christ crucified. The last reason, number seven, Christ's sacrifice, we see this in verses 15 through 17, Christ's sacrifice fulfills the promise of the new covenant. It fulfills the promise of the new covenant. Read these verses with me, 15 through 17. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. The new sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, had to be made, had to be effective. It was absolutely the fact that it had to be made. And it had to be effective. Why? Because God promised that it would be. God promised it would be. It had to happen. There's no other solution, no other reason, no other reality except that this sacrifice had to happen because God promised it. This new sacrifice was absolutely, as you know, central to this new covenant because God said through that new covenant that He would put His laws in their hearts. He would write them on their minds in this through this new covenant and that sacrifice that Jesus made would cause him to forget their sins and their lawless acts. All because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It had to be offered. God promised it. This was effective. It had to accomplish these things prophesied through Jeremiah in order for God to fulfill his promises 
which cannot be broken. God's promises cannot be broken. He's made a promise. It's got to happen. It's got to be fulfilled. He said he's coming back. Guess what? He's coming back. He's coming back. All of his promises are yea and amen. We can trust in his word. And this is what he's telling his congregation here. Through the new covenant, though the new covenant was new, it was not a new revelation, was it? Was the new covenant a new revelation? No! No, not at all. It was the fulfillment, what? Of an old revelation. He quotes Jeremiah. He says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Judah. I'll write my laws on their hearts. I'll put them on their minds. I mean, these people knew already from Jeremiah what God had promised. So this new covenant, though it was new, it was not a new revelation. It was just new in time. And these readers, these Hebrews, now faced a dilemma. And they couldn't escape this dilemma. Here's the Holy Spirit. What does he say in verse 15? The Holy Spirit also testifies. So the Holy Spirit is saying to them, through Jeremiah and through the writer to the Hebrews, a very significant thing. He's saying to them, you cannot accept the teaching of your beloved prophet, Jeremiah, and not receive the new covenant. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't reject the new covenant that he prophesied and at the same time believe in Jeremiah and receive his teaching. Do you follow? you see the dilemma they've got? You can't accept one and reject the other. To accept Jeremiah then is to accept whom? Jesus Christ. If they believe in Jeremiah and they believe in what he said, they receive his prophecy and his teaching and his word, that means then they must now accept Christ. They can't deny Christ. To reject Jesus Christ then is to reject whom? Jeremiah. They've got a dilemma, would you say? And not to mention all the other prophets that speak about the Messiah. And then ultimately, they'd be rejecting whom? The Holy Spirit himself. Sinning against the Holy Spirit. Mm. Bad news. And then we close with verse 18. And verse 18 very simply tells us this. That the work of the sacrifice is done. There will be no more. There is no more need for a sacrifice. He says, when these things have been forgiven... There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Forgiveness is already provided for those who trust in the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why would anyone, why would anyone want to go back to the old sacrificial system? Why would anyone want to trust in any other system once they discover Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's Christ's sacrifice that's effective. Not the old system. Not the old sacrifices. The old sacrifices, you can look at those and you can say they are symbolic of all the world's systems that people engage in, people try to come up with in terms of trying to save themselves. And guess what? They don't work. They're ineffective. 
They leave you coming up empty. This is why we preach Jesus Christ in Him crucified. There is no other message. And the writer to the Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. To reject Jesus is to have no other hope of forgiveness ever. Ever. To reject Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. He's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Salvation. Glorious and perfect salvation is promised in the Old Covenant and is provided in the New Covenant through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Say with me one more time. We preach Christ crucified. Amen. Amen. I made it. Now, I want you to think with me for a second. Just one more second before we ask the communion ushers to serve communion. We turn the lights down, please. Marsh, thanks. How do we respond to this? What difference does it make? What do we do with this? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We just walked through uh, 11 verses. And we've seen seven substantial reasons for the effectiveness and for the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus. What it affords us. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? One, believe it, right? Apply it in our life. There are some people in the room tonight who who do not have what we described earlier as positional holiness. You've never really made a commitment to Jesus. You may know about Him. You may have heard about Him. You may have been raised in a religious environment. But you never have personally asked Jesus to come into your life and, and sit on the throne, be Lord in your life. Once you do, you become positionally holy. Others of us have asked Jesus to be in our life, but we're in need of what? Practical holiness. There's some things that we need to put off. Things that really ought not to be in our life. Things that we're ashamed of. Some things that we would never tell another person. We don't want other people to even know about. But if we preach Christ crucified in our own life we want to evidence the fact that we love the Father and just as Jesus evidenced his love through his obedience we also evidence our love through our obedience as we take communion I want us to, to think on these things what difference does Jesus make in your life That's what you want to grapple with. That's what you want to think on. 
If you have been growing in Christ, if you've been maturing in Christ, and all you can do is thank Him and praise Him, then do that. If there's some things in your life that you need to put off so that you can put on practical holiness, do that. Make that decision tonight. If, if you say, well, I'll try. No, no. Say, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this with your strength, with your grace. Don't just say, I'm going to try. You're just setting yourself up to, to fail again, right? Lord, I want to do this. I want to, I want to be holy for your sake, practically speaking. If you don't know Jesus, now's a wonderful time to ask Him to come into your life. The Bible says that we must be sorry for our sins, truly sorry. We see how ugly and wicked they are, and only, only you, can, you can only see that because God opens your eyes. You're willing to look at their ugliness. Repulsive. But not only that you'd be sorry for them, but that you would repent. That means you'd turn around and walk away from them because they're so repulsive. And you'd walk into Jesus' arms. You would embrace Jesus and say, Jesus, save me. Some of you may need to make that decision tonight. And I want to just offer that to you in anticipation of communion. If you make that decision, just in the quietness of your own seat, then when the communion trays come down through the rows, you also take the elements. A little piece of cracker, a little cup of juice. Symbolizing his body and blood given for us. And hold on to them. And with all the rest of us, I'll come back and we'll take communion together in just a couple of minutes. Let's just let's think on these things now in preparation, anticipation for taking communion. playing Jesus loves me this I know but the Bible tells me so I got this picture in my mind of a man who's coming from a far distance he's on a very very important journey And in his pocket, he's carrying a very precious gift. He finally arrives at his destination and meets his beloved. And the precious gift in his pocket is an engagement ring. And he's come from a far distance to give her the ring a promise that though he has to go back he will come again and he will fulfill his promise that she will be his bride I thought what a beautiful picture and I, and I began to think well how does that fit with communion This is the engagement ring. 
You see, when the man goes away, he's left his beloved with this ring to wear. And she's constantly looking at it, reminding herself, he's coming back. He's promised. I'm his beloved. I'm his intended. And one day we'll be together forever. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Paul tells us that we, when we take the bread and we drink the cup, that we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. I think the analogy works in a very real sense. These elements, this little piece of matzah and this little cup of grape juice, are kind of like our engagement ring. They're kind of like the down payment. We come together, we take communion, we're reminding ourselves he's coming back. He's a faithful man, a faithful husband. And he's coming back for a bride that will be what? Spotless, without wrinkle, perfect. He's given us his spirit so that that can happen. He's changing us from day to day, from glory to glory. He's transforming us into that beautiful bride. And all of that is encapsulated in this, in this one little symbolic event called communion where we remember Him. Our hope is in Him where we, in effect, proclaim Him. We preach Christ crucified. We all know the bread represents His body. The cup represents his blood given for us. Isaiah said he was crushed for our iniquities. It pleased God to crush him. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. But nonetheless, I'm thankful. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are alive, that death could not contain you. Thank you that your sacrifice, your sacrifice, was far superior and effective to anything that all of history has to offer so that we might be saved, so that we might have life, so that we might be forgiven. Free, free, Lord. You've come to set us free. We thank you. Bless the congregation, Lord. I pray that each and every one of us would have a know your grace tonight to face those issues, those dilemmas, those things that loom ahead in this next week. Your word says that we should fix our gaze in heaven, not on the things of earth. Lord, right now, We're practicing that. Jesus said, this is my body. If you believe in Jesus, if you hope in Christ, take and eat.
the cup is the cup of the new covenant in His blood, which was shed, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. If you love Jesus, if you hope in Jesus, if you trust Jesus, let's drink the cup together to Jesus. Amen. Amen. We have a great Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's sing His praise one more time before we dismiss. Praise the Lord. So exalt, lift up all night, the name of Jesus, and if I come glorified, Christ Jesus the King.